Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Jason Pash, a member of MTI Incorporated. Thank you to all our listeners. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. I'm Annette Kuhlmann. Today we take a look at the state budget and how it affects education in Wisconsin discuss the demand by Freedom Inc. for protection for workers during air quality alerts, learn more about UPS negotiations, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Meaningful negotiations between OPEIU Local 39 and Trustage have been torpedoed by trusted ob- Trustage obstruction. OPEIU Local 39 reports that no progress has been made with the employer since the end of the union's unfair labor practice strike on June 5th. True Stage, formerly CUNY Mutual Group, and OPEIU Local 39 have been negotiating a successor agreement to the contract which expired March 31st. 2022. Negotiations broke down in January 2023, and OPEIU filed unfair labor practice charges with the National Labor Relations Board. They charged the company for unlawfully refusing to meet with the union to negotiate, failing to provide information legally required for bargaining, surveilling union members, and terminating the union's chief steward, Joel Vico, without cause. On May 19th, the union struck in an effort to move the negotiations forward. Initially, the company seemed willing to bargain, but in the three weeks since the unfair labor practice strike ended, the firm canceled two bargaining sessions and, according to the union, made no new substantive proposals at the two sessions that did occur. Labor Radio spoke with Joel Vika, a member of the bargaining team and the chief shop steward of the True Stage, formerly CUNY Mutual employees. We asked what the union has been doing to encourage the company to negotiate in good faith. Yeah, the the first thing that we have done since returning from an unfair labor practice strike is reach out to the new CEO, Terrence Williams, who is uh, beginning as CEO-elect as of June 26th of this week. We had more than 350 members sign on to a letter respectfully requesting a meeting with him uh, so we could attempt to reset our relationship between our organizations and try to reach a fair agreement. Have you heard back? We haven't heard back from uh, the CEO-elect yet. We have requested that he meet with us by uh, July 7th of next week. Uh, So we're hoping to still hear back from him shortly. Local 39 received strong support from the International Union and the AF of LCIO, but what can our listeners do to support Local 39? Yeah, one thing in particular is that uh, we expect that more information will be coming out over the course of the next weeks because the employer thus far has uh, refused to bargain in good faith. They've been surface bargaining with us and putting forward proposals that are not meaningful. Um, They're making administrative changes to language and passing that off as a genuine proposal meant to make movement towards the union on uh, outstanding 
proposals that remain, um, which is really unfortunate. We expect that, you know, collective action and public pressure is going to continue to be put on true stage to make sure that they do the right thing. That was Joe Vicka, Chief Shop Steward of OPLU Local 39. I'm Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. On Wednesday, Labor Radio spoke to Heather Dubois-Bornain, the executive director of the Wisconsin Public Education Network, about the proposed state budget and its impact on public schools. The Wisconsin State Biennial Budget passed in the state Senate on Wednesday and in the Assembly on Thursday evening. It now is at the governor's desk, ready for him to sign, veto, or partially veto. The budget represents a dramatic departure from the one that people were testifying on at the four budget hearings that were held around the state. The $2.6 billion in new investments in public education that have been proposed by the governor have been whittled down, and it just falls deeply, dramatically, unacceptably short of providing our public schools with the resources they need to meet kids' needs. I hope that the governor would use his powerful veto authority to try to improve the budget for kids however he can. He had pledged publicly to veto this budget if it came forward with a provision that gutted $32 million from UW system funding, and that provision remains in the budget. Republicans seem fairly united in their resolve to sell Wisconsin's public school students short in this budget, having already secured a week ago the advancement of a bill that puts the largest increase to private voucher school funding and independent charter school funding that the state has ever seen as a standalone bill. The state has already been sued over the constitutionality of its funding formula, and it barely won that case with a caveat that the state was in serious risk of not meeting the needs of kids in three specific categories. Those categories were kids with disabilities, kids who are English language learners, and kids in poverty. And this budget takes aim at all three of those categories by providing woefully insignificant resources in all three. Public schools only get about 30% reimbursement from the state, whereas um, students who receive a special needs voucher to attend a private school get the full cost of that voucher plus a 90% reimbursement. We want to know why our lawmakers are so woefully out of touch with both the concerns and demands of the public, but also with meeting the needs of Wisconsin's kids. Those are needs that the Constitution requires them to serve. And from where I'm sitting, they're just not doing their job. Why do you think they're doing this? Education has become so politically charged over the past couple of decades, and we have seen so much undue influence in this area coming into the state in the form of lobbying interests and privatization efforts. How can we get lawmakers to listen to us? It's very difficult to get your lawmakers to listen to you when you live in an incredibly gerrymandered district where your lawmakers are politically very safe and it is challenging to hold them accountable for their votes. But that doesn't exempt us from trying to do so. We need to let every single one of our lawmakers, regardless of what letter is behind their name, know that we are watching their every vote, that we know when they are voting out of alignment with the needs of the kids in the communities that they serve. 
check out our resources and the links to more information about all of these things and what they mean to public school kids. Our website is wisconsinnetwork.org. Pay attention as we're moving forward. When you get your property tax bill next year, don't get mad at your school board because your local share of school taxes went way up. Cast your gaze back at the state house because they're passing on that cost, even though the state has enough money in its coffers to fully cover all of the needs of Wisconsin kids that were proposed originally in Governor Evers' pre-K-12 budget proposal. That was Heather Dubois-Bernan. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Eighty-seven thousand children may lose their child care in the coming weeks. Frank Emspach has this report. Wisconsin Republicans cut three hundred and forty million dollars from the state budget targeted to support child care accounts. At the national level, Republicans refused a budget deal which would maintain the $46 billion COVID relief-related child care subsidies. The Republican-controlled Joint Finance Committee decided to cut taxes rather than fund child care. The tax cut they passed favors the highest income earners as compared to the majority of the population. According to the Legislative Fiscal Bureau, people making $30,000 or less comprise 40% of all Wisconsin income tax fathers, but they would get a tax cut averaging $4 each. People making over $500,000 compose less than 1% of tax filers, but they would get a tax cut averaging $12,753 each. Kids Forward estimated that Wisconsin's average cost of center-based child care for a toddler was $12,415, or 11% of median income for a married couple, and 36% of a mother's income in the state. The $4 tax cut won't go very far towards covering the cost of childcare. This cost burden is even greater for families of color. Systemic and historical racism over decades have driven disparities in earnings. As a result, families of color in Wisconsin pay a larger share of their income for childcare than white families do. In the state assembly, Democratic legislative attempts to add funds back for child care accounts failed on a party line vote on Wednesday, and the assembly forwarded the budget to the governor for his expected signature. Kids forward, among many other child care advocates, have called on the governor to veto the state budget. Earlier this week, child care advocates rallied to reinstate the $340 million to fund child care accounts. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. On Saturday, the Wisconsin Forum on Medicare for All included voices of organized labor. Greg Gabowski reports. On Saturday, at the headquarters of the Milwaukee Area Labor Council in Milwaukee, a number of community and activist groups sponsored a forum advocating for free universal health care, popularly called Medicare for All. Andre Walton, executive director of Our Wisconsin Revolution, moderated the forum, which was also sponsored by Citizen Action Wisconsin, Voces de la Frontera, the Poor People's Campaign, and the Milwaukee Democratic Socialists of America. 
It was also sponsored by the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America, the UE, Local 1135. The forum featured community activists, a physician, and elected officials, including State Representative Darren Madison of Assembly District 10, who described how getting elected to public office had the side benefit of finally providing him with adequate health care coverage. Also presenting was Alicia Black, who works at battery manufacturer Strighton Energy in Milwaukee and is Treasurer Secretary of UE Local 1135, and who was there with her young daughter, Rain. Black described how, even with a good union contract, the costs of medical bills and employment-linked health insurance, combined with the cost of childcare, still left working people like her straining to make ends meet. Labor Radio talked to Alicia Black after the forum. Black is on the union's bargaining team and described how negotiations over medical coverage consumed much of the discussion. So with the insurance, that's like the big thing that comes after the wages and typically that takes that's the longest <laughs> process ever the, the the main thing that we have to deal with is above wages because once they do the insurance they're going to try to figure out a way with these big corporations to the, the raise they give you within your contract let's go away with the insurance increase if we had the, the free health care the money that we spend on insurance would go towards those wages Many workers are forced to keep their current employment to maintain health care, says Black. There's about eight people there that's working past their retirement just to have insurance. Sean Fulkerson, a UE field organizer, agreed with Black that negotiating over U.S. health care coverage is a slog that can limit what can be gained in other areas of a contract. Even if a good union contract leads to better health insurance coverage for covered workers than a non-union one, it shouldn't have to be paid for at all, notes Fulkerson. So if we get the employer to pick up 80% of the health care costs, that still means that our members are picking up 20% of the cost. At Strident Energy in Milwaukee, 1135 members were able to bargain to get a 60-40 price split on family medical, which means that for Alicia, she's still paying $800 her family out of pocket every month. The employer is picking up $13,000 of that. If we have Medicare for All, that would be $800 in her pocket and $1,300 per month that we could put towards other priorities like wages, retirement benefits for our members. Black encourages other national unions to join the UE in demanding free universal health care. I don't know no one's rich that's in a union. So it's so much money that we could save with this free health care and take care of your, your families better and do more things with your family without having to pay these high premiums and cost for insurance and have to worry about how you're going to pay these hospital bills and worry about taking your child to the doctor or yourself personally to the doctor, afraid of the health costs. This is something that you should want to be a part of. It's bigger than us. It's for our elderly. It's for our, our family, our kids. It, you need to get on board with this free health care for all. It will benefit everyone, everyone in so many ways. That was Alicia Black of UE 1135 speaking Saturday at the Milwaukee Labor Council building at a forum advocating for free national health care in the United States. Saturday's forum has been posted online and can be found on YouTube using the search term Our Wisconsin Revolution. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Citizens of Madison are faced with worsening air quality due to the smoke from wildfires in Canada. Freedom Inc. has taken up the, the issue. Freedom Inc. has asked the area's political leadership to respond to the crisis in air quality affecting Madison. Over the last few days, Freedom Inc. has received an outpouring of requests for M95 masks and air purifiers from their elderly members and those with young children. Labor Radio spoke with Zoe Moore of Freedom Inc. and asked her to describe the issue and what Freedom Inc. is advocating to deal with the problem. 
The issue is these wildfires are creating dangerous air quality for our community. Um, and we have not seen any measures or response put in place by our local governments, elected officials and leaders to actually address these air quality conditions that are causing health risk for our community. There has not actually been a plan put in place to truly protect our people. What specifically do you think should be done? One, we actually need to put the, the government, our local government, actually needs to put in an emergency shelter at home order for any time the air quality reaches the index of one, one, 151, if I remember that correctly, 151, which is what, what is deemed as unhealthy air quality. Freedom Inc. is also calling for a change in spending priorities. And along with that, we are also calling for real investments in community safety and health. The government has to divest from the police for that to happen. Right now, we are currently spending over $100 million on building a jail and investing in more policing. And there actually needs to be actual funding and resources and time put into implementing real solutions that will address the, the crisis that we're currently in. We can't wait until people become really, really sick and are dying. Our people are currently facing the consequences right now of unhealthy and hazardous air quality. So we actually need to divest from the police and put money into holistic healthcare and housing for all. There should be no reason as to why we are funding the jail and the police force at, at much higher rates than housing, education, education, and feeding the community. Could you also describe the $50,000 mutual aid mobilization? So that is completely just all mutual aid efforts. It's it's um, us moving in ways that we can, fundraising, asking for community support to make sure that we can supply these items for our community. Because this, is, this was a direct ask from the community. And it was around the conversations around, well, I don't have these, these supplies to protect myself. How do I actually get face masks? How do I actually get an air purifier and filters and, and use it? And so at this time, since the city, the government has not moved in providing these these protective measures for our community, Freedom Inc. is moving in this way. And we're asking community members to support us in this. And we're also really at this point requesting that the government, local governments and elected officials move in the direction of actually funding this and supporting the community because it is their responsibility. It, it shouldn't just be us that's doing this work. This is actually the work of our elected officials if they uh, claim to be there to protect our community and be the voice for our community. Well, what can our listeners do to help? We're asking folks donate to Freedom Inc. so we can continue to supply these items for our members in the community that are in need, specifically elderly, folks who are pregnant, folks who have young children, and folks who are already at high risk are uh, have health are struggling with health their health already. Um, we're also urging people to write in, call in to our elected officials and tell them that they actually have to take action. They actually have to fund these resources to really divest from the police and put money into these resources. Thanks to Joan Moore, queer justice director for Freedom Inc. and longtime community organizer for this interview. I'm Frank Emsbeck. I'm reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Anderson Nettinger, 
Stewart with Teamster Local 695 spoke to Labour Radio about the UPS strike authorization. authorization. What can you tell us about what is going on with UPS negotiations? UPS is the largest private sector bargaining unit in the United States. It employs about 340,000 union represented workers. Negotiations began at the beginning of 2023 and have been ongoing through the summer. What's happening right now? This week, UPS presented its economic proposal to the Teamsters, which included wages way below what the union was expecting and it amounts to a pay cut. So the union has responded saying, give us a better offer or we're on strike beginning August. What happens next? Members at UPS have authorized a strike. The union asked for its last best final from the employer. And if they don't get what they're looking for by July 31st, then they'll call the strike. What local represents those workers? In Wisconsin, all UPS workers are represented by Teamsters Local 344. Are there any plans to meet with management and the negotiators for the union? What the union left it was really asking for management to give them a proposal. The union is expecting that management's not going to move on their proposal. So the union is preparing for a strike. The significance of this is huge because it's the largest bargaining unit in the country of the private sector. They move, I think, 6% of the GDP every day. Work stoppage is going to have enormous effects on the economy. And because the union represents all of those people wall to wall, it would be a very effective stop. It's kind of like the ghost of the 1997 UPS strike is at play here because the last strike at UPS happened when the administration of Ron Carey and the Teamsters was negotiating a contract. UPS went in very confident and didn't expect the union to fight back. And the union swept and won the strike pretty decisively. How can listeners support this effort? There are practice pickets that the union is putting on to get community and union members ready to walk a picket line. They should look out for information from Teamsters Local 344 about where those might be taking place. Are there any efforts to prevent a strike from the government? Last year, the federal government intervened and prevented a strike of rail workers, many of whom were also represented by the Teamsters. So there's already precedent in the Biden administration for wanting to stop a strike. Sean O'Brien, who's the general president of the IBT, has close connection with the Biden administration. There's major cause for concern here because in an inflationary economy, Biden has a lot of interest in preventing a strike from happening. That's definitely hanging over the strike. That was Andy Sernatinger. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Locomotive manufacturers at a Pennsylvania-based plant are taking bold steps to regain their power. Labor Radio has a report on their fight. On the surface, it might seem like a standard economic strike. 1,400 Erie-based locomotive manufacturers and clerical workers at Westinghouse Air Brake Technologies, or Wabtec for short, walked off the job late last week after rejecting their management's last, best, and final offer. The workers, who have been without a contract since June 10th, 
were unimpressed with the maintenance of a wage progression schedule that created unequal pay for equal work and thinly veiled threats by management to permanently subcontract over 270 jobs if the proposal was voted down. Beyond the nuts and bolts of the contract, workers are also picketing to restore the right to strike over grievances against the company, a right that they held for nearly 80 years with former plant owner General Electric but was given up in the first contract after ownership was transferred to Wabtec. As a May report from the Illinois School of Labor and Employment Relations found, under Wabtec's purview, grievances are less likely to reach closure than they were under GE, more likely to drag on for months or even years, and more than twice as likely to be rejected. Grievance strikes, therefore, give workers an outlet to withhold their labor in cases where they feel that the provisions of a standing contract are being violated, and the grievance process is being abused by the company. While grievances are one tentpole issue driving the workers' fight, workers have walked off the job for other non-economic reasons, too. Notably, in order to leverage greener locomotive contracts for the plant. Quote, Building green locomotives is essential to the future of our country and will benefit the local economy here in Erie, said UE Local 506 President Scott Slauson in a statement announcing the strike. Quote, Unfortunately, Wabtec's unwillingness to work with us to resolve problems, either through the grievance process or through contract negotiations, is a major impediment to that bright future. End quote. Through fighting for demands that extend beyond the boundaries of a standard union contract, these 1,400 workers are risking their employment to cast off the future prescribed by Wabtec's management and build the brighter future that Slauson envisions. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. The South Central Federation of Labor asks that listeners join Starbucks Workers United stores to celebrate Pride with a strike. The event will take place on July 1st from 10.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. At 10.30 a.m., strikers and supporters will gather at 661 State Street for a march to Capitol Square. At 11, there will be a rally at Capitol Square, followed by a picket line at noon at 1 East Main Street. All are welcome. Multiple hazards were found at a Green Bay meat processing plant. Carol Weidel has the story. Federal safety inspectors responding to a Wisconsin employer's report of an amputation found workers at a Green Bay processing plant exposed to multiple hazards. After investigating a December 2022 injury at JBS Green Bay, Incorporated, inspectors found the worker suffered crushing injuries to his right index and middle fingers while removing a shackle from a cow moving down a trolley line. Agency officials also found that JBS failed to ensure there was adequate guarding in place on the trolley line to protect workers from pinch points. OSHA cited JBS Green Bay Incorporated for four repeat, four serious, and four other than serious violations. Other infractions were related to lockout or tagout, fall and electrical hazards, and hazard communication. The agency proposed more than $227,000 in penalties. JBS Foods is a leading producer of beef, poultry, and pork production with operations in the United States, Australia, and Canada. Its products are sold under dozens of brand names, including Swift, Primo, and Pilgrim in the United States. The company is a wholly owned subsidiary of JBS SA in Brazil, the world's largest processor of fresh beef and pork with more than $50 billion in annual sales. Listeners may recall that JBS was cited last November for child labor violations. 
The child labor services JBS was reportedly buying are specifically prohibited but were contracted for in significant quantities. JBS got its child labor from Packer Sanitation Services Incorporated, a labor contractor based in Wisconsin. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Jason Pash. Thanks to editor Frank Ibnspack, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jaboski, Sean Hagerup, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, web poster Anu Lee, and to all our readers and other mem- and the members of IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Annette Kuhlmann. We also like to thank all the, of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark.